I still think we're trying to solve these problems by assuming that the way this works is to be in a seat in a building from eight to three in 179 days, absent field trips and testing days. And like, that's the framework that this thing's gonna work on. That just simply is never, that just, we, we're so far beyond that at the moment. I'm Jill Shaw here with Ross Wilson, and this is Deep Dives brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Ross and I do a hyper-local podcast called Last Night at School Committee, where we report on what happens at the Boston School Committee meetings. Boston, as you may know, is an urban school district, and its achievements and challenges mirror those in other school districts across the country. We've created this podcast, Deep Dives, to host conversations about the way things are today and what it will take to create change in education. In each episode, we're bringing together national experts for a roundtable discussion about key issues in our schools, diving deep into root causes and innovative solutions. All right, so let's go. Today in our first episode, we're joined by John Deasy, president of the Bezos Family Foundation and a former superintendent of several large school districts, including Los Angeles and Prince George's County, to talk about the state of education in America. How are you? I am good. It's really nice to see you, brother. I haven't seen you in ages. It's been a long time. It's Aww. been a long time. John, It's uh, this will be fun. Oh, thank okay. you very much for joining us today. I'd be glad to. Great to have you here. So, I, I mean, you and Ross know each other. I have read about your career primarily. You've had this amazing career, though, leading urban school districts. You're at the Bezos Foundation now. You spent time at the Gates Foundation. Why did you get into education in the first place? I get into education because I was actually pre-med. I wanted to go to med school until I found out how much it cost, which was expensive. I had begun to spend time working with juveniles who were incarcerated. And that had a huge effect on me. And quite frankly, I was thinking, okay, so these young people do stuff that at times possibly I did and others did, and they're here and I'm not. And I think the only way I could swear that was if, first of all, something was wrong with the system radically, which I now know, of course, is true. But if you got out of high school, maybe this wouldn't happen. And so I said, okay, let me let me try to teach. And I never looked back and I loved it. So you went from being in the weeds in a particular school to running massive districts in the country. And now you're at the Bezos Foundation. And how do you bring all of that experience to what you're doing? There is an absolute role for government and school systems, which are governmental systems fundamentally. But there's a role for philanthropy. There is a role for catalytic giving. And there's a role for private-public partnerships. Schools can't do it alone. The responsibility is quite enormous because you don't have infinite resources, obviously, but there are almost infinite number of problems. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So let's get, in, let's get into these issues. Uh, you know, students have been really slow to recover from the pandemic. And we know the pandemic really hit particular cities and particular families very hard. And really, it just basically perpetuated the inequities that we have in our society. And, you know, in Massachusetts, we've seen this. We've seen in some districts in Massachusetts have had about a 30% decline in proficiency on our state testing since 2019 in the pandemic. 
in general, what are you seeing around the country in terms of districts trying to recover from the pandemic? And are there any promising practices that you think we should be expanding? This is a really important and complex set of questions. I don't believe that the pandemic caused these problems. They were there in very large degrees before that. But the pandemic made them incredibly public and transparent that we couldn't look away any longer about those. They exacerbated inequities that existed out there fairly dramatically. And those were for a whole host of reasons, which we're now just beginning to understand, actually, in terms of what it did to young people, their social and emotional development, their intellectual development, their cognitive development. It had a profound effect on families, family structure, the family abilities. I say all of that because it is not as simple as, well, the pandemic's over, we can come back to, quote, school and everything will be normal again. That'll never be the case. So there is generational issues and concerns that we have to wrestle with. So I lay that out because I think one of the things that I see and I hear is this desire to, let's just get back to normal and kids can catch up. And I think what we're seeing is that is a just simply not the framework that's going to work. Many students were doing so well before the pandemic, they're not doing so well now. So the thought that some high-dose tutoring is going to somehow make this work and that we're going to end up better, faster, stronger, I think is really a fallacy in terms of the thinking. What I would like to posit is that there is no moment, I think in at least, I'm going to say the last hundred years of public education, that is such a ripe opportunity to reconsider how we engage, how we instruct, and how we build students, student leadership, and exactly the same for teachers and leaders. We totally agree with you. And even, you know, as we were sitting in the middle of the pandemic, internally, we kept talking about how, you know, this is like the best opportunity for a complete paradigm shift, right? I think the problem was we did not free ourselves. You know, instead, like we kind of hunkered down. There was a lot of fear. There's so much uncertainty. And so it was probably not the ripest environment for freeing oneself. And so maybe now the time, like we've recovered, there's more trust and we have more confidence that we did probably a couple of years ago. And yet all of the ESSER funding, all of the funding that came from the government, which could have been used to, you know, kind of rethink and operate, at least model, test this notion of a paradigm shift in education around things like you're mentioning instruction and and what is school and how do we interoperate with families and get supportive communities. It feels like, man, those billions of dollars that were handed out could have been like invested in in that direction. And so is there still fertile ground looking into the future that we can operate on if we can then like have trust and free ourselves? Uh, Well, I certainly think so. But I would also say that that's a long stretch from where we are at. So I don't by any means, my next set of comments are not to criticize government. I think government, we were in a unprecedented, incredibly complex period. 100%. Like students were passing, parents of students were passing, teachers were passing, people were dying. And and at a scale we had never been prepared for or had seen before. So there was absolute fear. And that period of time, I, I hold absolutely no judgment um, on how we got through that. We are definitely past that period of time at this point. And so one opportunity that might have happened and then could still happen is that these funds, I mean, the first tranche of funds were like, you know, emergency, like, you know, the house is burning down, 
we're going to get you more water. I get all that. But the lion's share of the funds were given to us as recovery as opposed to redesign. And so recovering things, we're going to go back to where we were. And that, I, I think I mentioned why that's probably not going to get us where we need to go. When you were actually only in recovery mode, I don't think we should have expected great gains around that. Whereas if we were to think about this quite differently, and that would require government to incent and advise and guide that. And so it didn't come with a playbook of what to do with it. So most people didn't know, quite frankly, how to spend it quickly because we were recovering from a disaster as opposed to planning opportunity post-disaster. If we want to do something about that, I think one of the ways to, to frame that is to really rethink the use of current and any potential new state and federal funding. More structure maybe, but maybe um, a, a better defined definition of expected outcomes. Because I do, I do buy into your, into your idea. Like, I hadn't so thought about it that let's, way. Let's but anchor I, this in maybe one example. One of the things yeah. that we see, maybe back to Ross's question, is that wholesale large percentages and numbers of students just never return to school. And second of all is, I guess, whatever the term we want to use, chronic absenteeism, truancy, whatever the term is, is at like sky high proportions around that. Traditionally, we approach this as is a consequence for not coming to school. So we find you, we punish you and or your family, and then there's a whole series of things if you don't come back to school around these issues. I think that there is, this sounds not to be smug in being funny. I believe this dead serious in my mind. If you, we want to know why kids aren't coming to school, why don't we ask them? I mean, the whole notion of why don't you go? I don't see a big truancy problem for Saturday night and Friday night football games. I don't see a large problem of non-attendance to school musicals and plays. When students feel valued, deeply engaged, and actually find that this is meaningful to my development as a person and where I want to go, I tend not to miss those opportunities. And I think those opportunities are absolutely possible in algebra, just like they are in soccer. So, John, I want to hypothesize a little bit here. I agree with you. The end user is the important person to talk to here and try to understand why you know, a quarter of our students are more are chronically absent across our country, which is just, and it's across all subgroups of students. We're just seeing this massive crisis of students not wanting to go to school. And we could hypothesize around that. We could say, maybe it's about safety. Maybe it's about feeling a sense of belonging to a school community. Maybe it's about having teachers, you know, certified teachers in classrooms and, and teacher shortage could add to that. It may be about our students are using technology at a greater rate now than ever before. And then they're going into school and they feel uh, some level of disengagement with the content that's being provided. On those issues, like, do you have a sense of I'll throw one out, like ed tech. Is there a role? Have you seen any promising practices around ed tech and the use of ed tech recently to think about engaging students and at the same time, democratizing great teaching given the teacher shortage that we have? The answer is yes and yes. I still think we're trying to solve these problems by assuming that the way this works is to be in a seat in a building from eight to three in 179 days, absent field trips and testing days. And like that's the framework that this thing's gonna work on. That just simply is never, that's just, we, we're so far beyond that at the moment. And the pandemic actually made that real to understand that it doesn't need and have to be that way for good or bad. 
So to your point, here's some very interesting pieces. Now, AI is um, the Wild West out there. Um, thoughtful and careful use of explainable AI. I am seeing really quite remarkable uses. And so what small group instruction used to be, so I have a, a teacher and I have three aides in a classroom and we're trying to actually do phonemic awareness and vowel sounds. So almost all of that can be done one-on-one with thoughtful, explainable AI. And you've seen, I'm sure, the programs, like I have seen them. It is really astonishing. So that I have a highly customized experience with myself, headphone, my computer, and that it is almost a one-to-one experience in individual customization, which leaves me, the teacher, to do work that I would never have been able to get to in terms of working with students who are super accelerated or are in need of significant catch-up around those pieces. And I can work with those and not lose track of what's happening in the classroom around that. And I see the same with math. I see the same with the construct of early writing, certainly advanced writing around that. I think another piece is the idea that Young people, I'm talking about older now, are in need of working. I mean, we have some significant economic profound headwinds in many families, whether those families currently, whatever that structure is, lots of issues around that. The notion that students can experience school in a very different time frame and have the ability to have meaningful employment to contribute to the relief of the other huge stress back at home For a long time, we understood that childhood actors and actresses had a very unique way of experiencing school. While they were on set, school was something that was both virtual or distant around that period of time. And they had a young career that eventually thrived and they were able to go to school. I'm not sure why a model like that is only germane to young actors or actresses out of Hollywood or New York City. Those constructs absolutely can be brought to what we would call mainstream traditional education. And I believe, without any doubt in my mind, you'll see substantial changes in the notion of relevance and rigor and engagement. Well, you know, on that topic, is it sounds like the Carnegie Foundation is working on this to, to, because they were the ones who put that structure in, the, in place oh so many years ago. And so they're definitely trying to rethink how do we think about time? Yes. We think about that as well. Like is time in terms of hours and days and grade levels, really, are those the right constructs to think about today when, when you can have one-to-one personalized education so what if I can fly through K through 12 in seven years? Right. You know, or what is it? What if it takes me 11? Does it matter if I'm now conquering, you know, things that are put in front of me as opposed to coasting and completely missing giant swaths of content that just leave me perpetually behind? We agree with you very much about this notion that we need to rethink time. How hard will that be? Do we need folks like the Carnegie Foundation to come forth with a proposed new way to think about structure? Or do you see states and towns and cities looking at this already and trying, like scratching their heads at least, and trying to figure out how do we work our way out of this box? Um, You know, we learned our lesson in science and, okay, we don't do leeches anymore. And the Flexner Report funded by Carnegie helped us understand what it means to have a modern development of a scientific 
development of doctors in the medical field. This is exactly the right time to do that. The thing I want to be extra, I want to provide extra emphasis on is it will not be just the redefinition of the unit, so to speak, and time around that. It has to be a redefinition about what competent and competency means detached, first of all, from time for attainment, more on how do we measure those skills applied versus I acquire the knowledge and then I can just simply tell you some facet around that. That's going to be way beyond book, quote, knowledge, and it's going to require other institutions to be on board. And those institutions are the academy, the higher education. Those institutions are the general workforce, the organizations that hire people, particularly young people around that. And they're going to be thinking of new forms of engagement and incentive. Things along those institutions, what does it mean to get into college? What does it mean to get employed? They need to be as aligned with the work that I believe that the Carnegie Corporation is going to do. And and I, I couldn't be more supportive of them rethinking this. John, these are big ideas. Personally, they're, they're very much aligned with the ideas that we talk about all the time in our work. I'm curious, in your background as superintendent, you and I both spent a significant amount of time on contract negotiations in our respective districts. And at that time, we were all about, you know, teacher effectiveness and how do we measure teacher effectiveness and potentially think about how we reward great teachers by revising compensation systems. Looking back on that work, how important does that seem now, given the paradigm shift that we need to be going through? And what is the role of teachers' unions and these bargaining units and trying to figure out what the future of education holds. One is I should declare a disposition that is I have only worked in districts that are labor districts and have unions because I believe in organized labor to my soul. It doesn't mean that I've also had a fair and appropriate amount of friction in moving through those processes, but I just personally wouldn't work in an organization that didn't respect and engage in labor formally. So my answers will come out of that disposition. And so the package of what does it mean to be effective and what does it take for me to reach that point are not separate conversations. And I think they're both involved in, quote, the negotiation process around that. I think the second piece is that competency is not uh, as narrow, I think, as we first thought it could be, just like it is not narrow for students, like we have thought for a long period of time. I think the third thing I'd want to say about that is some of the most amazing contract experiences I ever had were the ones which gave everybody like profound nervousness. Like, and that's probably the nicest language I could use. Like people were like <laughs> ordinarily nervous, which was, okay, you, the school, you know what's best for your kids. More than central office ever would, more than the governing board ever would, you're closest to them and their families. Why don't you make the best decisions about what's right for your kids and create your own contract? Can't violate the law, can't not you know, do free and reduced lunch and have to do Title I, but everything else I think should be completely open to the local decision. What hours, what days, and then that becomes a thin contract for the school. When those things happened, which weren't often, but were unbelievable. I, I have, well, they're not students anymore. I have adults today who will still talk to me about an experience they had in school in LA when they went to one of the pilot schools. And we engaged in conversations about how to constrain that rather than expand that. 
and that was a lesson learned, Ross. That was something that I I realize now. They were in constraining conversations, not expanding conversations. We, we talk about this a lot, particularly with multilingual learners and the education of students with disabilities. And we create these adult programs and fit students into them. And we put them in the contract. And we basically go, we're going to govern the education of students by these programs rather than giving that flexibility and creating the flexibility that adults could respond to the needs of our students. Well, and that students and parents can lobby for things and that we have enough agility to be able to meet the needs of, that are expressed. Both those areas are, are areas where we have so much uh, further we can go in, in legitimate service and legitimate parent engagement. I mean, just let's just use the issue of family, and, and I think it's family and parent engagement. We are still in the constraint that this is about a conference in my classroom at this one hour twice a year, if that, and then the rest of the time I'll notify you when things aren't going so well. And yet there are probably many models out there right now that are rich and powerful, including models I have seen in our First Nation Native American communities where it looks nothing like that. And it's highly legitimate and much more um, engaging and respectful. So we know what to do. I'm big into the permission to do it rather than having to ask forgiveness that you did it. And I think that is a role for governance around creating more permissions. Well, John, about permissions, what is the role of the mayor and the sort of the structure and the leadership of the city in allowing permission for the bold change to happen? Uh, so that's one form, and it's a narrow form in the U.S. of governance, meaning a mayor has either responsibility or direct control in the school system. The N there is small in terms of doing that. I'd like to expand it to, to just government. So whether it be a state department or it be a school board or committee, or in the cases of mayors, I think thinking through with youth and educators, what are the types of guardrails that we could expand so that A, we don't first do no harm, an absolute Hippocratic oath applied to education, but be expansive. Like, there, it's, it is, I don't see a downside at all. As a matter of fact, I, I see a lot of downside to not engaging in those kinds of conversations. And the data heretofore would, unfortunately, I think, underscore that. Yeah. Can we go back for a second to, I'm just thinking about, you know, kids not showing up at school the way that they used to and the numbers really being running in the wrong place. And John, you've worked with kids, Ross, you have too, for many, many years. And there's a lot of conversation now about the decline in mental health and kids. And everyone knows parents who have kids who are way too young, one would think, like experientially, to be diagnosed with mental health disorders, and yet that's happening left, right, and center. And, you know, we huge institutions, hospitals here who talk about their emergency be room being overrun now by presentations of mental illness and, and a disproportionate number of those being kids. What are we doing wrong that the mental health of our youth is deteriorating at such a rapid rate? There was an increase in this for a whole host of reasons. And some of these reasons are exogenous to schools, the rapid rise, then use, then profound misuse of social media as but one example. And the complete erosion of the types of supports that students used to be able to have. And I'm talking about directly like mental health supports around those pieces. So we weren't doing a good job at actually treating those issues. 
But then you actually have this experience, and here is one that I do say the pandemic is responsible for. And that is, you had for anywhere from six to two years of young people whose ability to literally go out and socialize was severely to almost not allowed whatsoever. And we're just faced with 24 hours of death. This is a rather unprecedented event. And then we go back to a place where, okay, you go back to school. And by the way, all those supports weren't there to begin with anyways, and they're, they're not there now. So that's the arc of which I would say, if there is anything we should be investing in, it is clinical social workers and pediatric psychology inside of schools, because it's not somewhere else. If emergency rooms would like to breathe, then government, which is, this is now their responsibility, must take the preventative and early interventions and put them at the point of contact. Those points of contact are school. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but one of the things that we've been doing at the foundation is funding cognitive behavioral therapy classes for teachers, you know, so that then when they're armed with that knowledge for themselves, but also then, you know, it's useful in deploying in their relationships with kids. And I do think, you know, kind of local government should be leaning into these sorts of supports as well, because it's not very expensive to train people and give them this gift of CBT or, or dialectical behavioral therapy, which can really scale kind of solutions and create the kind of environment that you're talking about in schools. First of all, 100% full stop agree. And I suspect you've had these conversations, like I would make the comment, trauma-informed instruction is very, very important and the skills to do that. However, with an underline, we cannot expect teachers to be therapists. And I expect principals to be clinical social workers. There is a requirement that expertise be in schools just like there are assistant principals and other forms in schools. And it's never going to fall to one nurse for 2,000 kids. And it's not going to fall to a teacher with 41 kids in their classroom around that. It will see the results that we hope and expect when the rest comes to bear as well. All right, John, in Boston... We have a few different issues that we're dealing with right now. One is we have a declining student population. So the vast majority of our schools in Boston receive what we call soft landings because literally there's not enough students in the school to fund the operation of the school, the teachers in the school, the staff in the school. Our transportation budget is, if not the most expensive in the country, it must be the second most expensive in the country. It's about 130, 140 million a year on, on yellow school buses. And we have about 50% of our schools who are designated by the state as significantly underperforming. Oh, and one other issue. The majority of our buildings were built about 100 years ago, if not more, and are need of massive repair. So I know you in, in Los Angeles, you experienced a number of these issues, but in particular, you built, I think, the most new, new school buildings that's ever been done before. So just, I, I would love your reflection on these issues that we're experiencing in Boston, they're all interconnected, and your leadership in Los Angeles. So very different set of contexts. We were rapidly growing, and we had land. The building piece, there was multiple leaders who helped make all this happen. But we came from, after a lot, a lot, a lot of delay and delay, schools were Kids only were able to go to school 165 days a year because of the massive overcrowding. So they would go to school for six weeks, another whole 
student body would come in for another six weeks, another whole student body for another six weeks. It was a disaster. The situation you're describing in Boston is not too dissimilar to what's happening in the country. We are, we are watching a declining student body, and we are watching deteriorating older buildings by and large. And we are trying to then navigate that with a customized transportation system that will only get ever increasing. It's just the math works in that direction. The solutions are ones that are really very emotional. They're not math solutions, meaning that we have to have fewer schools open if we actually want to be able to have a balanced budget. That is either school closure or repurposing. Those are incredibly emotional decisions to make. Where I have seen some of the most thoughtful work on those is when the following things are brought to bear. One is shuddering and forgetting is never going to be a solution. But we have thousands of parents who struggle for both income and housing security. The notion of taking schools that are then closed and then repurposing and revitalizing those schools for condos and apartments has two very virtuous cycles coming together at the same time. Second of all is a choice system. You, you do have public transportation, at least in your city, and I get that. The notion of school buses the way it should be working I mean, or should this be a public-private partnership with public transportation around that? So, I mean, we know that in California, we don't bus very much. You take public transportation. So we help, we help form an under, a partnership where we underwrite a portion of your ability to get on the subway or, or the bus around those pieces. Both of those areas begin to relieve pressure on a budget, which then can go back and support the things you just spoke about around that. Third is choice. I'm not sure why I have to go to school because my address and zip code are here versus an opportunity for an open and total choice system. Last time I checked, we have choice in almost everything in our economy. You are not told that you can only have like this brand of gasoline or you can only buy that car or that smartphone. But we definitely go there when it comes to schools. And there's enough research to say that that has an effect on parents and students, which ups both engagement and the opportunity for building more efficacy around that. They are rolled off my tongue very quickly. I get that. I am not in any way saying those are very difficult decisions to make. But when they're made with community as opposed to to a community and that there is a series of additional upside, so it's not just loss, my school that I went to and my grandpappy went to and his grandpappy went to are now closed. That's only a downside. That's only a loss. And that that property can be housing for first-time income challenge families, that's a really very different kind of conversation. When you think about school choice, do you think that we're headed in that direction? We were just at a conversation at one of the local universities around education, the future of education, and there are a number of representatives from different states talking about optionality around school choice, which seemed to make a lot of sense, although it's only happening in certain parts of the country. And in other parts of the country, we seem to be very protective. And I understand there's a part of it is the incentives around how budgets are created. Do you think there's more momentum than less in the direction of school choice? I personally hope so, because I actually think that 
the argument that takes place is do whatever it takes to get kids to stay. Because the only choice is to go or not go. And I actually think if you reframe it and say, sure, stay. Where would you like to stay? We'd like you to stay with us. Where would you like that to be? It's a very different framing than I'm not happy here, so therefore I vote with my feet and either go charter or somewhere else. I think it's an unlocking conversation for things that we would desire. I would love all my kids to stay in our school system. That's why we run it and it's why we construct it. It's why we fund it. I got one last question. John, the Boston Globe recently published an article that said the Massachusetts should consider the nuclear option for catching kids up in school. And they named seven things. These are all from education experts that you probably know. And I would love your reaction to them. And I would love you to just tell me if they're on track or if you would add anything. You know, Ready? I thought when you said the Globe, we were going to go to their much revered sports section. But all right. Yeah, let's- no, not the, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 not Dan Shaughnessy or any of the sports section. We're going to go right to the, the experts. Here we go. Seven things. Number one, create a tutoring army. Pay tutors and get volunteers to tutor students. High dosage tutoring will help kids catch up. You can't go wrong with providing students with tutorial work. Just don't expect it to solve your total problem. But, like, good idea. Lord knows we need it. Number two, longer school day, longer school year. If it is done exactly the way it is now, it's a terrible idea. Number three, figure out how to support those students that during the pandemic were graduated into the workforce or into the world who may not have been prepared to go into the world at this point. So all graduation requirements were waived. Students moved on. They may not have entered higher ed. They may not have entered the workforce. Figure out how to re-engage them. Brilliant idea. That should be in every paper in the country. Pay teachers more. Oh, 100% yes. And it's not just give them more. It is try to also pay teachers more, period, necessary, but not sufficient unless we figure out the conversation we had before about the profound social, emotional, and mental health needs of the youth in their classroom. Uh, overhaul reading instruction. We've been hearing a lot about the science of reading. <laughs> um, let's have that conversation with actual scientists about reading. Personalized plans for every student. I, I mean, of course, yes. It, it's like long overdue. And the last one, don't try to fix everything everywhere. Focus. Okay, so you just gave me seven things we have to do. (laughs) Um, I I would say the thing about that one is you can't do everything. Like, that's very true. And you don't have unlimited funds. That's very true. So you have to choose which levers that you need to and have the ability to do now and hopefully some levers down the road. There is wisdom to it. And what's a big idea that's missing? How about I would maybe counteract the longer day and longer year with why does the current day and current year have to be the norm? And so the big idea is what is wrong with going to school four in the afternoon till nine at night? Amen, brother. If I'm going to be the sibling care for my little brother, I just saved mom a bunch of money so she can keep her job and not lose the stress around that piece. And I get to go to school. I'm trying to understand what is so magical about 180 And I'm trying to understand what's magical about 47 minutes for prescription of courses. You get the idea. John, it has been really fun to talk with you. You've had, your impact has been like on tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of students over your career. And it's awesome that you are now 
leading up the charge of the Bezos Foundation. Oh, thank you. It was great to talk. And I, I will say I have a profound affection for the town that you are speaking about, Boston, and things aren't easy. And if anything was said as glib or criticism, it's with the deep understanding that these are very, very tough issues, period. And it's a city that can and should and must be one of our beacons in this country. Thank you for listening to our conversation with John Deasy. We hope that you enjoyed this first podcast of Deep Dives. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. And if you're interested in what's happening in Boston Public Schools, subscribe to our other podcast, Last Night at School Committee, where we recap every Boston School Committee meeting and provide commentary and context on what it all means. Have a great day. Thank you.